Welcome to One Life Online, the podcast that brings you the weekly sermons at One Life Church, Kampala. In this episode, we listen to a sermon titled, Preach Upon the Housetops, from Matthew chapter 10, verse 25 through chapter 11, verse 1, presented by Martin Muchoki. As you listen to this message, may the Lord speak to you through His Word, by His Spirit, and cause you to walk according to His will, by His grace. We stopped off last Sunday in verse 15, and we continue today from verse 16, just as has been read, looking at these words that Jesus told His disciples, that He spoke to His twelve, His apostles, that today He is speaking to you, you who are His disciples. He tells you that He's sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves, have you ever looked at a ship? I've always wondered how it would feel to be beaten by a ship. Sheep are generally non-violent and non-dangerous, except maybe in children's animations. But they are non-violent, they are not dangerous, they do not fight back. You may refer to them as creatures of calm. Creatures of calm, you can see them sitting on some grass somewhere, enjoying some rest as they chew their food. But the same cannot be said of the world, can it? The world is like a pack of wolves. Now Jesus is saying, I am taking this creature of calm and I am sending it to the pack of wolves. He sends his disciples with an urgent message. They are to be calm as they deliver it in the midst of ever-present danger in the midst of wolves all around them, acting like a pack, ganging up against them. Sometimes we think, maybe my enemy is the world. Maybe my enemy is the devil only, the world only. Maybe my enemy is my flesh, my sinful nature only. But let me propose to you today that your enemy is threefold. He is like, it is like a pack of wolves. You're surrounded by it, the world on one side, the flesh on the other side, and the devil on the other side. And you try to this, run to this side and you find one wolf, and to this side you find another wolf, and to the other side, another wolf, you're like a sheep in the midst of an enemy who seems insurmountable. How are you going to overcome that particular enemy? You can only do so by residing in Christ by remaining as a sheep of Christ, by looking to Christ and trusting in Christ. He is your shepherd. He will protect you. There's a song that we sing by City Alight. It says just that. I know that my shepherd will defend me and will help me to overcome this enemy which is like a pack of wolves. So they are to go in the midst of ever-present danger, remembering they are messengers, they are not God. They are to be shrewd, wise, prudent. I like the word prudent. They are to be prudent as serpents. And you wonder how, how are serpents prudent? When a, when a snake sees you coming and you're going to attack it, normally it hides. If it senses danger, it will crawl away somewhere. 
In most cases, they attack when they are cornered. But snakes are very quick, very cautious. They are an expert in evading and avoiding danger. You may even easily kill a snake. Personally, if I see a snake somewhere, my natural inclination is to kill it, and I will if I'm able to do that. I don't care if it is harmful or harmless, if it is black or white, if it, it doesn't matter. We can discuss the details later after I have avoided the danger. But people easily kill snakes, but not many snakes actually kill people. It's a surprising fact you'd find unless it is cornered. It hides. Jesus says, do not be hasty, do not be skillful in starting unnecessary fights and unnecessary wars. He's using this picture of a snake, of a serpent, to bring out this point. Do not be an expert in starting wars and fights. Ever been on social media and find that there are people on social media who just enjoy starting fights? They just enjoy engaging in fights. All manner of fights, it doesn't matter. They are there. You will always find their comment. You will always find their like. They have an opinion for every political situation, economic situation, spiritual situation. Doesn't matter. They are prepared to fight. Jesus says, don't do that. Be like doves. Don't arouse danger. Don't injure or harm, but be gentle, be innocent. From the version that was read, says innocent. Instead of fighting, just, just live. Just walk away. Don't deliberately or needlessly place yourself in the way of danger. So when he sends his disciples, he tells them that on top of what we looked at last Sunday. And then from the verse that follows all the way to the end of the chapter, what he tells them are things that they will actually not face until Jesus ascends to heaven and the disciples are left to continue with the work of preaching the gospel. Beware of men. There is a but there in verse 17, but it's not a contrast. It's just a continuation. Beware of men, they will deliver you up to councils. Beware of wolves, so to speak. They will deliver you up. The, the, the word used met, um, deliver you up is a metaphor. It means taking someone and handing them over to a jailer so that they can be punished or imprisoned or tortured or beaten or harmed in the most violent way. These people will do that in courts, civil or religious courts that are found in villages or in towns. They will deliver you over to the LC1, to the LC3, to the RDC or RCC. They will deliver you to the highest court in the land, the Supreme Court to the high court, a lower court, to the court of appeal. They will hand you over to the Sanhedrin in their day. They would think of the Sanhedrin or to their local judicial tribunals in small villages so that you can be scourged, so that you can be flogged, so that you can be whipped, so that you can be beaten. And you say, oh, this never happened. Yes, it happened. We know it happened because we read about it in the life of Jesus, in the life of Paul. The law of God dictated that if someone was to be punished by flogging, they would be beaten about 40 whips, 40 canes, 40 times. Now, the Jews were very legalistic. They didn't want to break the law of God by maybe whipping someone 41 times or 42 times in error. Because once you start whipping someone, you may lose count. 
because you're doing it in anger of some people in enjoyment, unfortunately. And so what the Jews did, they made this cord that, that, that had three lashes on it. And so when they would whip someone, they would do that 13 times. If you do a simple math, 13 times 3 is 39. So that they would ensure one is left in case, you know, we violated God's law in some way. Paul said he was whipped five times by the Jews. Five times. Just as Jesus says here. You will be flogged, you will be beaten. Paul experienced this. Jesus tells them, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. To be a witness. Again, we read about this in the, in the Acts of the Apostles. We don't see the, the 12 in particular being brought before governors or being brought before kings. But we do see Paul. We do see the disciples in the book of Acts and following, being brought before even the emperor himself so that they could answer to charges of preaching the gospel. Jesus tells them, you'll do this, you'll be taken to these places so that you can bear witness before the highest offices to testify the gospels. Even the Gentiles, who Jews consider to be profane, who they consider to be heathen, you're going to testify to them, not necessarily for their salvation. If you read the verse, it is so that you can be a witness, so that the gospel was preached to them. If Jesus says them, so be it, but they will have no excuse for ignorance. Now, when this happens, Jesus tells them. And these are no easy words Jesus is telling them. As you're sitting here, it has been repeated from this very same pulpit by people such as Dave Davis, who have been in a missionary in difficult countries, and some of you know this, that there are people who are really being persecuted. They are not able to gather like this or open up their Bibles and read them like we do and listen to a sermon or go on YouTube or go on social media and follow a Christian personality and hear what they have to say. And so sometimes it may not appeal directly to us here. We have different problems. We are thinking, you know, of the border that I will take back home or, or the bad roads or, or the taxi. We are thinking of the high cost of life. We are, all these things are burdening us. There are places where people are just thinking of their lives for the sake of their faith in Christ. Jesus tells them, listen, when they bring you in front of these courts and these difficult places, don't be afraid. Do not be concerned about what you are going to say. Do not worry about it. When you are handed over to be punished, do not worry what to say. Do not be anxious to spend money hiring advocates or lawyers and experts of the laws, I will defend you. Who can have better defense than that? Jesus says, God will defend you. Maybe your arrest would be sudden or you didn't have enough time to prepare. You didn't know what to say in response to what will be charged against. My spirit will lead you, will guide you, will give you exactly what to say. What a promise, isn't it? Jesus tells them, I assure you of this. And in the Acts of the Apostles, of course, we find evidence of this divine inspiration. We find Paul before Agrippa. We find Paul before governors. I will give you what to say. Why? Because it is not you who is speaking, but the spirit of your father who is speaking through you. <laughs> I've, I've, I've heard of lazy preachers who don't want to do the hard work of preparing sermons. Because it is hard work preparing sermons, believe it or not. You spend so many hours reading and, and comparing Bible versions and uh, looking at commentaries so that, you know, you're not coming up with new truth 
because there is no new truth. Anything I can say has already been said. There is nothing new under the earth. You just say it differently to a different people at a different time. There are some lazy preachers who feel, I don't need to prepare. I'll just come on Sunday, stand behind the pulpit. God will give me what to say. And they misuse this very verse that is written here. Jesus is not speaking in that context. There are times like that. There are times when you just go to a congregation like this, you go to a meeting like this, and they say, who will give us the word of God? You had not prepared. You had not prepared yourself beforehand. And then the Holy Spirit inspires you, and you go and you preach, and you declare it, and you explain it. The same sort of evangelism where you meet someone, and you explain to them the gospel. You had not even prepared to do it. You are just in the ordinary course of your life. Absolutely, the Holy Spirit inspires people to do that. But if he has given you time to prepare, and you can be able to prepare a lovely, amazing biblical defense to do that. An amazing sermon to do that. But to the disciples, Jesus tells them, my spirit will speak in you. But it gets even worse. Look at verse 21. Not everyone in a nuclear family will believe in Jesus. And therefore, brother will deliver up brother to death. Pause for a moment and think about that. If you have a brother, father will deliver their child. You are a father, think of your child. You are a mother, think of your child. Think of taking your child and delivering them over to be killed because they have turned their religious beliefs around. Think of children rising up against parents. They will sell you out, Jesus tells them. They will betray you for your faith. They will prefer you rather die. And you know, it is common for Christians to be, to be ostracized, to be segregated, to be isolated, to be martyred, to be killed simply for their faith. Some of you can testify of that and you feel, I was not a Christian once, but now I am. I was saved from a particular religion and I had to run away from my family. I had to run away from my loved ones. They would have killed me. They would have oppressed me. They would have harassed me. This is a reality Jesus prepares his disciples for. He tells them that you will be hated, in verse 22, by all people for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. You'll be hated. Contrast that to modern day Christians who want to be loved and accepted and welcomed by all. Who want everyone just to, to be smiling at you and don't offend anyone. Don't offend anyone. <laughs> want to be welcomed by all. Jesus says you will be hated by all people for my name's sake. You know some things Jesus said, even we don't believe them. All here is fake professors of Christianity, non-believers. The brothers, the fathers, the parents who have just been mentioned who don't believe in Jesus. Supposed friends. But Jesus says it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. The person who perseveres many hurtful and just and fair things for my name, by my grace, Jesus says, through my spirit and without turning away from me, that is the person who will ultimately be saved, who endures to the end. The end of the persecution is the end that Jesus has his mind here. Not the end of the world necessarily, but the end of the persecution 
And Jesus doesn't specify the time the persecution will end. He just says as long as it will last, as long as it is necessary. If you persevere to the end, you will be saved. And again, this is not salvation of life eternal. This is temporal deliverance from persecution. When you hold out to the end, you will be saved. There is a place for endurance, isn't it? We read about it in the Bible. For example, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 36, we read that, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. We have that need. In the book of Hebrews chapter 12, same book, just a few verses after that in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin that so easily besets us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 13, Jesus will repeat these same words, but the person who endures to the end, that is the person who will be saved. Are you the person who is going to endure all the way to the end? And you have said, like the songwriter, I have decided to follow Jesus. I am not turning back. It doesn't matter what comes my way. It doesn't matter if everyone leaves me, if the circumstances of life are hard, if I'm sent as a missionary and I die as a martyr. It doesn't matter the afflictions of life. I have made a decision to follow Jesus and I am not turning back. Jesus tells them in verse 23, make the best efforts to preserve your life while presenting the gospel. The point is not to die unless you cannot avoid it. In that case, it's better you lay down your life for Jesus than to deny him when they persecute you in this city, flee to another city. You will not have finished preaching through these cities until the Son of Man comes. What does Jesus mean until the Son of Man comes? It has been understood in at least four ways, but some people have given at least seven options of what Jesus meant until the Son of Man comes. He's sending his 12, not today, but almost 2,000 years ago. And he tells them, you'll not have finished going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Do you think Peter and James and John and Nathaniel and so on and so forth are still there today evangelizing in the cities of Israel? What do you think? Do you think they have lived for this long? I doubt it. It's unlikely. They died. We know that. So what he means before Jesus comes has been understood in seven ways. Let me list six for you. That it is before Jesus' judgment of Israel in AD 70. When Rome invaded Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, ransacked the city, and demolished their financial system and economy. Some people have thought that's what Jesus meant. Others have thought it's before Jesus' death and resurrection and before he returned again for 40 days. Because after he resurrected, he returned for 40 days before he ascended to heaven. This is unlikely because what Jesus tells them happens after Jesus leaves, but, you know, people hold all manner of beliefs. Others believe it is before the sending of Jesus' spirit, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, is what Jesus means by before Jesus comes. And others like me believe that it is before his return, before his second coming, to judge the world, before he is publicly acknowledged at the as the Messiah at his return, before the end of this 
age of tribulation which we are going through now. Because it is an age of difficulties and tribulation before Jesus establishes his kingdom. During this intervening period, Jesus tells them, you should expect to receive the same treatment I received. You'll be able to do more things than I did, but a disciple is not above his master. You'll be able to do more things than I did in quantity rather than in quality. But in regard to being rejected and abused for my name, you will face what I faced. As my pupils, you should be satisfied to become just like your teacher. What did they call your teacher? They called your teacher Belzebul, the Canaanite god Belzebul of the Old Testament who still existed in the New Testament. He was the Lord of flies, the Lord of filth. Of all the fake gods, he was the most despised by the Jews. He was the head of the demons. In fact, Belzebul was basically Satan. So when they say that Jesus is Satan, that's exactly what they are calling him. You are the devil, you are not the Messiah. Because Belzebul was highly contemptible and severely despised by the Jews. No wonder he told them about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that there is no forgiveness for them. Such is how they will malign his followers. Whatever it takes to muddle the water, whatever it takes to spread mud all over their faces. So Jesus tells them, don't be surprised when it happens to you, not if, when it happens, except expect to be called even worse names that I was called. As slaves, you should be satisfied to become just like your master. But know this, know this, there is nothing covered that will not be revealed. So he gives them three bases for not fearing. Three bases. Look at this, the first one in verse 26. Therefore do not fear them. Do not fear. Unrighteousness and deeds of unrighteous which they think are concealed shall be revealed. Wickedness will eventually be exposed. Therefore, don't fear. This will not continue on forever. Every evil thing done shall be disclosed. Whatever wrong was done in hiding shall be made known, and it shall be righted. We look at the wickedness in this world, and we think, shall it ever be made right? Yes. Jesus shall return, set up a new world, new heaven, new earth, no mercy, right all the wrongs. Not only the bad, Jesus tells them, but even good news. Soon, this hidden gospel that I come to proclaim and that I send you as well to go and proclaim will be known by all. It started with the 12, going to proclaim it. Today, it is almost common knowledge. The word gospel has become one of those common words that is easy to misuse, such as, for example, the word like. You may have a conversation with someone and half of the conversation is like, you know, like, like that place that we went to, like, like the food that we ate, you know, like the way we went it back into our car, like, um, like that guy who came to see us. <laughs> it's too much, isn't it? A word that has been misused. Like gospel, 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 gospel. You hear gospel, gospel, you wonder what does gospel mean? Or like the word love in popular culture, what, what does it mean? Everyone is singing a song of love and writing about love until you, what a, it will become common knowledge. Jesus tells them this gospel that right now appears to be hidden. And also you, his disciple, you cannot remain hidden for fear of hostility. 
No, 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 you cannot do that. You cannot remain hidden for fear of conflict. And so stick to the mission. What I teach you by words or actions which no one else at the present time sees nor hears, go and make it known. Go and preach it on the housetops. When they would construct houses then, their roofs would be flat and announcements would be made on top of those flat roofs. You know like the community radios in Kampala, where you, which wake you up in the morning and they're announcing something. Jesus tells them, go and preach, go and proclaim this gospel from the housetops. Go and preach it from the housetops. That is the title of my sermon this morning. Reason number two, not to fear. Jesus tells them that people at their worst level, the worst possible thing that human beings can be able to do is to kill your physical body. Verse 28. But God goes past that. In his righteous judgment, he can destroy, he can kill not only your body, but also your soul in hell. After he has stopped giving you the life that he gave to you in the first place, He's able also to give you a miserable eternity. This is the person you have to fear. Because this life is very short. At most we will live for a hundred years. That's very short. It appears long at times, but it's short. And so the person to fear is not human beings. It is God. Fear him. And this is not the fear of dread. If you see God coming through this direction, you run away. There is still a place for fear. The Old Testament stresses the fear of God when you read it. The New Testament stresses the love of God. But these two go hand in hand. You cannot say I love God and I don't reverence him. I don't stand in awe of him, which is what this fear means. Reverencing and being in awe of God. Reason number three not to fear, Jesus tells them. Verse 29 to verse 31. Don't fear because God is in charge of everything. The Father in heaven controls all things. Your master is sovereign over the circumstances of life, all the affairs of the universe, including the how and the why and the when everything happens, even in matters as insignificant as cheap sparrows. Personally, at, at this present time of my life and the age of my life, there is no particular doctrine to me that is so comforting as this one. To always know that God, God is in control. God is in charge. God is sovereign. And he tells them, even in things that are as insignificant as cheap sparrows. How cheap? Two of them are sold for a, a, a cent, a penny. You know, 50 Uganda shillings. When was the last time you saw 50 Uganda shillings? I have a coin. I have kept it for, you know, just in case they run out of circulation, just so that I can remember. This is 50 Uganda shillings. And the Jews understand this. They bought many sparrows, not only for food, but also for sacrifice. God says, I know each of those sparrows. I know the time they were born. I know they are growing up. I know the time you took a stone as a boy to hit one from the tree. I loved it and I knew it. I know the time that it was slaughtered and killed. I know each of the sparrows that are in existence. Not one of them is forgotten before God. Those are the words that Luke uses in this very text. Not one of them is forgotten 
before God. There's that song, His Eye is on the Sparrow. It's a lovely, beautiful song. I should have told the choir to sing it, but you know, since they usually ask me for song recommendations. But then I remembered it just yesterday. Not only the sparrow, but the number, the arrangement, and the type of hair. God knows how many strands of hair you have. Have you ever tried to count them? No? Because most of you have never seen your hair with your physical eyes. Right? You use your mirror. Unless you cut it and hold it in front of you, you can't see it when it's on your head. I've never seen it. Things you will never be able to do before you die. You will never see your back unless you use your mirror. Never! And there is nothing you can do about it. It's the sovereignty of God that that will never happen. And yet it is on your body. But God knows how many strands of hair you have. He knows. It is his divine providence. You know, we usually think God only cares about the major things. God doesn't care about the details and the small things, like the hair on your head. Hopefully you have natural hair, not artificial hair. God knows the strands of hair that are on your head. He doesn't overlook anything. Even the insects that you trample on every day without knowing. God knows when he created them and how long their lifespan is and so on and so forth. His eye is on the sparrow. If it is, what about you? No wonder at a different setting he asked his disciples, O ye of little faith, O ye of little belief. And therefore, verse 32, whoever confesses me before men, whoever acknowledges me before people, whether during their life or at a point of death, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. If you deny me, I will deny you. Some people have used this verse to mean that Jesus can lose those people whom he saves. Jesus can lose his sheep. That is just absurd. They, we are his sheep, they are his sheep, he cannot lose them. And furthermore, this is talking of rewards, not salvation. Jesus is talking about discipleship, not sonship. So you cannot use this to sustain that argument. Jesus says, how you treat me today determines how I will treat you on judgment day. Uh -huh. Deny me, I will deny you. Confess me, I will confess you. Then you ask, how can we deny Jesus today? How? We can deny Jesus by our deeds, by our silence even, when we should speak. We can deny Jesus by our words, by our speaking. And this is not merely a one-off denial that disqualifies someone from being a disciple. I mean, after all, didn't Peter deny Jesus? Three times in one setting. Jesus had already said, I have prayed for you. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. So it's not a one-off denial. Christians can still fall into this sin even today at a difficult point in life and you deny Christ. But a consistent, continual denial. And then quoting from Micah chapter 7 and verse 6, which talks about Israel's moral corruption in a time of insurrection during King Ahaz's reign, Micah chapter 7, Jesus quotes it in verse 34 and in verse 35. And he says words that are at times very difficult to read. I did not come to bring peace on the earth. And you wonder, 
Didn't we read in Luke chapter 2 and verse 14, glory to God in the highest and peace, right? Peace toward all men. Don't we read in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 that being justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace. Don't we read in Philippians 4, 7 that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Don't we read in Romans chapter 16 and verse 20, not only peace with God, not only the peace of God, but that the God of peace shall soon bruise Satan under your feet. Peace with God, peace of God, God of peace. Don't we read in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, his name shall be called Wonderful, isn't it? Counselor, the everlasting Father, the mighty God, the what? The Prince of Peace. Now here we read, Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace on earth, I did not come to send peace on earth, I came to send a sword. Is Jesus not our peace? Then what does, this, what does Jesus mean? All the things that I have read just now from these verses, Jesus is all of this. Have no doubt about that. He is all of this. His good news gives inner peace. It settles the debt we could never repay. It takes away the wrath of God against our sin and sinfulness. Against my sin and your sin. It is... Peace with God is only through Jesus and there is no other way to attain peace with God. And the eventual end of life is Jesus is peace. Prince of peace gives peace. This is a reality. Don't overlook it. Don't forsake it. What Jesus is talking about is the, is the immediate period after sending out the disciples. There will be hardships for the Christian. Conflict, persecution, being hated, despised, and abused. This is what the disciples will face. You know, from the very beginning, Jesus made it clear that I'm not calling you to a rosy life, to an easy life, so that none of his disciples feel cheated or confused. There'll be difficulties. There'll be hardships. But I will be with you, and I will help you to overcome those. But the plot thickens. In verse 36, a man's enemies will be those of his own household. <laughs> Most of you people lock your houses at night when you go to sleep. Maybe once in a while you may have forgotten to lock by mistake, but most people lock their houses. Because you, what do you think? The danger is out there, isn't it? I look at my wife, Victoria, and Amanda, Jasmine, Emunashe, and Eliel, and there is no danger here. If there is danger, it, it could, even if I have a dog, maybe I feel that dog could be dangerous. Or even my guards out there could be dangerous. But the danger can't be here. Look at this. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. And we saw this in verse 21. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And the problem here is not love for parents or children who God commands us to love with a special love but loving them more than your God. Being willing to hate Jesus, but be loved by family. Preferring to be held back by family rather than go with Jesus. Yes, at some point in time, your enemies will be those people who are your brothers and sisters, and even your children and parents, because of the gospel. 
but you must stick to me. You must love me more than all of these people. If it comes to a point where you have to choose, then you have to choose Jesus. And is this an easy decision? No, no. It's, it's an almost impossible choice to make. But Jesus says, I gave you life, and I saved you, and I brought you, and this is what my mission calls. They are hard, heavy words that Jesus speaks. And to make them even harder, he talks of the cross in verse 38. This is the first time the disciples are hearing of the word cross from their master. They may have been shocked because this is the deliverer. This is the Messiah. This is the warrior king. And now he's telling us, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What did the cross mean? The disciples understood very well. Living in those days, it meant shame. It meant pain. It meant difficulties. It meant a brutal, demeaning, agonizing death. They had probably seen it exercised by the Romans to so many other people. And now Jesus is saying that we, his disciples, are going to bear the cross, the shame and the pain and the difficulty. What he informs his disciples is that he wants total submission, full commitment, absolute surrender, complete devotion to him. We sing the songs and we say, I surrender all, I surrender all. That's what Jesus is asking. Personally, I'm unable to sing that song when it is sung, so I usually change the I to two, T-O, and I tell God, please help me to surrender all because I know my sinfulness and my inadequacy and I've not reached there. Praise the Lord for the person who has. I'm still on that journey. But for me, help me to surrender all. He tells his disciples, even if it means shame and pain and difficulty or dying as a matter, should it require it, be prepared for it. The person who has been made spiritually alive, which is the basis that Jesus gives, the person who has found life and life in abundance may lose his physical life in the hands of those who hate Jesus. That is the bad news. Here is the good news. The person who loses his physical life because of their faith in Jesus because of Jesus, they shall attain and recover their lives spiritually. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. They will find it. It's the basis of this beautiful command of Jesus. So yes, live life today. Live it in abundance through Jesus Christ. But don't live for today. You will lose the purpose of life if you just live for today. The same God who judges body and soul of the wicked in hell is the same God who gives a glorified body and eternal life to his righteous in heaven. He's the same God who gives life for eternity. For eternity. And so, here ends the difficult words of Jesus to his disciples. He will not lie to them. He will not deceive them. He will not sugarcoat the mission. He will not try to pamper them. He just tells them the reality. And he just gives them the promises and the hope. So he warns them and he promises them. We need to have both. But like a good preacher, he finishes with an encouraging conclusion. Did you read it in verse 40 to verse 42? He who receives you receives me and he who receives me receives whom, him who sent me. And this is such a privilege, isn't it? You ask me, Martin, why is it a privilege? 
John wrote in 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Did my mic stop working? That we should be called the children of God. And Jesus dwells in you, the believer. He abides in you, the Christian. He lives in you, his child. Do you know that every day when you're walking, remember that Jesus abides in you. He is Emmanuel, God with us. You're not only his child, but you are his witness. You are his, his people. You are his ambassadors, his church, his special possession. You are his own. You belong to Jesus. And so, listen, listen. How people treat you is a reflection of exactly how they would treat Christ. Pause for a moment and think about that privilege. If, if you're following Christ in the right way, if you're a disciple of Christ, if you're living for Christ in your day-to-day -day life, if you're seeking to honor him and to praise him in your everyday life, if you are his ambassador, his child, his treasured possession, and you present the gospel in, in your words, in writing, in actions, or in whatever form, and you say, I am his child, the way that people treat you on a day-to-day -day basis, when you present the Gospels, is the same way they would treat Jesus if he was standing right in front of them. Because you are his child. You are his ambassador. His spirit dwells inside of you. And then Jesus gives an example from life about a prophet. The person who receives a prophet receives a prophet's reward. The person who welcomes a righteous man receives the rewards of a righteous man. The apostles are the prophets of Jesus. A prophet is a mouthpiece, someone who speaks on behalf of the other. How they are going to receive you as you go on this mission is exactly how they would receive me. If they accept it, that's how they would have done to me. If they kill you, that's what they would have done to me. As my righteous children, as you go declaring righteousness, how that will be taken is how I would have been taken if I went to declare righteousness to them. When I looked at this, I thought, what a privilege. What manner of love that Jesus would bestow upon his very own disciples. And whoever shall give even one of these little ones only a cup of cold water, even the smallest act done to Jesus' disciples, who are called little ones, Little ones, do you want to be honored as big by people? Being a disciple of Jesus will not get you there. We are called children in other places because we are always in need. We are looking to our Father. We are exposed without Him. We are little that He may build us. We are small that He would grow us. We are humble that He would lift us. We are less that He would make us great for His name. We are decreasing that he may increase. We are last of all and we are servants of all. Our boasting, our strength, our pride, our power, our achievements are not because of us. Our, if you preach the gospel to people and they believe it, it's not because of you. It's because of God. Jesus says, whoever gives one of these little ones, that's what we are. We are little ones. And we, we gladly take our humble position that Jesus gives to us. 
We are proudly Jesus' little ones on mission for him. And those who show kindness to Jesus' messengers will by no means, will certainly not, your version may say, will in no wise. Truly, Jesus said they shall never lose their reward. And the reward here is most certainly a spiritual one emanating from offering physical and material assistance and support to his followers, to his church. You will not lose your reward. And so, when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples, chapter 11 and verse 1, he departed from there. What did he depart to go and do? To go and teach? And to go and preach. That's why he came. To preach and to teach the good news of the kingdom of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he performed miracles to, authentic to authenticate and signs and wonders the fact that he was the Messiah. Because he was compassionate, he healed and he delivered. But some people get that the other way around. And they want to focus on the signs and the wonders and the deliverance and the healing. And then ah, the teaching and the preaching is below here. No, it's, it's more of this way. Or maybe you may say it's more of this way. Teaching and preaching in their cities. Our Father, we thank you for your word in Matthew chapter 10. Though it is not an easy word because the mission of the 12 entailed peril and hazard and danger. Though it is not an easy word for us as your disciples today, because your mission that you have given to us to accomplish entails peril and hazard and danger, nonetheless you are with us. And you give us precious promises, amazing privileges. You say that you will be with us every step of the way. Your eyes on the sparrow, your eyes on us in a much bigger way. We are not insignificant, we are significant before your eyes, so significant that those who receive us, it's the same as if they received you. Those who accept the gospel from us, from our preaching, from our teaching, from our explaining of it, from our years of labor, it's as if they received it and accepted it from you. Help us not to abuse our privilege. Help us to rejoice in it. Help us not to forget the promises that you're given. Help us to be glad in them. In our times, of distress and difficulty for the sake of your word. As we continue studying your word, we pray that you would speak to us wondrous things out of your law, that you would cause us to see Christ and exalt Christ through the gospels. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to God's word today. Feel free to contact the pastor on phone at 0705 or send an email to pastor at onelifechurch.ug or follow us on Facebook at One Life Church and subscribe to our YouTube channel at One Life Church Kampala, Uganda. One Life Church is a multicultural community of believers equipped to serve Christ's mission.